Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the use of masks, meditation, and improvised play for inducing liberated states. My guest, Peter Coyote, is both a noted actor and a Zen Buddhist priest. You've probably seen him in films. He's made over a hundred movies, including Aaron Brockovich and E.T., The Extraterrestrial. He is the author of Sleeping Where I Fall, a chronicle, The Rain Man's Third Cure, an irregular education, a book of poetry called Tongue of a Crow, and most recently, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. Masks, meditation, and improvised play to induce liberated states. Peter lives in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome again, Peter. It's great to have you back with me on New Thinking Aloud. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's nice to be here. You've really done something quite unique, integrating your two major backgrounds as an actor and as a Buddhist priest into sort of a synthesized practice. I found it fascinating. Well, I'm glad. I was very worried about this book when I was writing it because um, it's two things. Uh, for 40 years, I've been teaching acting improv exercises and mask work. and as the longer my Buddhist practice went on, the more I began to see synchronicities between them. And I realized at a certain point when I've had you in my clutches for half a morning, if I put a mask on you and hold a mirror up to you, the mask will eradicate your personality. And for 10 minutes or so, you'll have a free feeling of absolute freedom from self-criticism, self-consciousness, second-guessing, hesitation. And um, I realized that it was like enlightenment light, and it happens cold sober. And by the time you've done this three times, because I use three different masks with you, with each student, by the time you've done this three times, you have a pretty visceral understanding of what Buddha meant when he said no fixed self. And so I use that experience as a lost leader to interest people in meditating and in learning Buddha's description of reality so that they can summon it up when they want to and need to. And so because of those two different strains, well, let me back up. So the book was going to be a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of exercises that people might not understand. So I got this idea of taking the Lone Ranger and Tonto, lost in the desert, out of work, their scriptwriter had died, they were fat and out of shape. The horses were lame. And they see Buddha camped under a mesa, under a cottonwood tree. They don't know who he is. And they ride over. And the Buddha leaps up and he takes such impeccable care of the horses that the Lone Ranger deduces that he must be the servant of a, a rich man because he's so well trained. And he tells Tonto uh, that we're going to stay around till the master comes back. Maybe we can get a loan. Maybe he'd even bankroll a new movie. And the Buddha, of course, sees through all of this. And so what happens on interleavened chapters, the Buddha and Lone Ranger take people from traditional human problems and confusions all the way through enlightenment in a kind of serio-comic fashion. And it's a way of uh, kind of diverting people from too much intellectual study, reading things that they should be experiencing in the flesh. Let me go back to the very first phrase you used, which is after you've had people in your clutches for about half a day, it uh, suggests that preparation is important. I couldn't just cold put a mask on. It might not have the same effect as it would have if I had done some preparatory work. No, that's exactly true. So one of the things about all these exercises and games is that they stress you in kind of a non-threatening way. 
And when you're stressed, you keep running into the edges of yourself. You keep running into situations where you say, that's not me. That's not the way I do it. And I change your posture in many different ways. And when your posture changes, you're not walking or moving the way you usually do. And you don't feel like yourself. And so you've hit an edge of the self. And so by the time we do this for several hours, your your sense of self is sort of sensitized and it's sort of been moved around and bruised in a non-traumatic way so that when I put the mask on you and you see a completely foreign face in the mirror, your brain kind of rushes through its memory banks to assemble something that will account for it. And you, you create a kind of holographic image and people will know everything about the character they, they play. They'll know anything I ask them, how many, how many children they have, what their sister was like, what their, their voice is different, their posture is different. And they are basically have gotten out of their own way, which is the point of what I'm trying to teach. One of the comparisons that you make in your book that I found fascinating is you suggest that putting on the mask, and I think you're using masks that are totally white, they're just blank masks, it's equivalent in some ways to taking a psychedelic drug trip. It is. So, one of the, one of the, I mean, I have nothing against psychedelics at all. I've <laughs> taken thousands of grams of psychedelics. But the, the problem for human development is that it's like taking a helicopter to the Grand Canyon. You, the vista is magnificent. It's awe-inspiring. It shakes up your perspective. But there's no, you know, no five-hour trip that is going to override a lifetime of training and habits and reflexes and problems. And the other problem is, is because you flew in a helicopter, you can't find your way back without the drug. Whereas if you get there by walking, which is the equivalent of meditating, you can leave breadcrumbs for yourself. You can find your way back. So the problem for me with the book was, is it an acting book? Is it a self-help book? Is it a Buddhist book? Is it an, uh, a satire it was such a genre bastard that I didn't think it would ever be sold. And so it took a year before my agent actually placed it. And I'm very grateful to inner traditions that I'm not having to drive around with this book in the trunk of my car, you know, peddling it like my own CDs. Well, it's quite a discovery to think that Something as simple as a, a little white plastic mask might be as powerful as an LSD trip or a psilocybin trip that many people who have had these experiences report that they're life-changing. Although you point out they don't always change people's lives and very often we fall back into our old habits. More often than not, trust me. <laughs> The, uh, it's why I became a Zen student eventually. Um, I won't say it's as powerful at sensory alterations as a psychedelic trip, um, but I will say that it gets you completely out of your own way. It gets you outside of your own personality. And your own personality is the arbitrary awareness that we call a self. It's been composed of our self-awareness, our proprioception about our body, hands, eyes, thoughts, impulses, sensations, consciousness, things we've been told about ourselves. Oh, you're such a good boy. Oh, you're such a bad boy. Oh, don't treat your sister this way. It's things we've implied about ourselves, about the way people respond to us, things we think about ourselves. And so over time, all those things get coalesced and reified. They get actually get turned into a feeling of something solid within us. So that when we begin saying things like, oh, I'm always this way, I always do that. We imagine the self as a kind of fixed entity, something like an organ, but it doesn't exist. I mean, I don't care how long you search. Your, this thing you call yourself has no form, it has no color, it has no location. 
And if I tried to sell you a car and said, oh, but Jeff, uh, I can't remember the brand. I can't remember the color of it. And I can't remember where I parked it. You would be justifiably suspicious. And yet we, we all have, because we have this self-awareness, we just assume it's like a thing, an organ, but it's not. And understanding that it's not is the gateway into great expanded sense of freedom because really mostly what gets in our way are habits and ways of thinking and assuming that we are that we can break down. In our previous conversation, you began talking about your Buddhist practice. And one of the points that you mentioned is that the real self, one experience, for example, in Kensho is actually the, the whole universe. We're, we're not separate from anything. Yeah. <laughs> and the, what's funny about it is it's completely provable in, in about five seconds. I mean, if I say to you, Jeff, have you ever been independent of oxygen? Have you ever been independent of sunlight? Have you ever been independent of water, of the microbes in the soil that grow your food, of the pollinating insects, of the birds that kill pests? You can take this all the way out to the Earth's place in the solar system. If we were closer to the sun, water would burn off. We wouldn't be here. If we were farther away, water would freeze. And the Earth is held in place by the gravitational matrix of the rest of the universe. So we can't live in that awareness. And for evolutionary reasons, it was useful and important to give us an idea of a separate self. And also our impulses for greed and anger and all of the things which helped us survive. The problem is that it's we tend to think of it as the totality of what we are and we ignore the other part. So there's a kind of self-referential point of view, what Buddhists call small mind. And then there's the whole thing that small mind floats in and really uh, it's not that one is truer than the other. It's that both represent, it's a both and situation. And you can, each one has a shadow. And you can avoid the shadows of one by switching to the other and looking. I mean, the shadow of self-centered uh, existence is narcissism, feeling that we're the most important thing on earth and feeling that everything we think is our inner nature and our truth and we believe it all. And the shadow of the holistic point of view is it makes us overlook the value of an individual entity. We say, what do you mean? There's no contest between uh, an endangered butterfly and a place where we could build a hospital for people. Well, both are products of the energetic power of the universe, the kind of pregnant energy that's always producing forms producing them and eating them, whether they're individuals, whether they're thoughts, whether they're leopards, oscillates, dolphins, we're all products of this, what Buddhists call emptiness. And they call it empty because once I've proved to you that you are part of everything, you can see that the idea of a fixed independent self is an impossibility. If everything is dependent on everything else, where's the separate self? And so the only antidote we have to limit our egoism and our self-indulgence is looking at the whole thing and going back and forth between them approximates wisdom. So you began teaching these acting classes and the work with masks inside of various Zen Buddhist centers, I gather, around the country. Your, your main acting students were Zen students. That's right. Well, when I ended my time in the counterculture and I decided that uh, I needed to make a living, the only really appreciable talent I had was perhaps as an actor, um, I started teaching at University of California Extension. And um, there was something about the way I was teaching that was very popular with businessmen as well as uh, actors. Again, I was teaching them how to get out of their own way and how to disappear into what they were doing. And so I attracted a lot of people that 
had communication problems or suffered from shyness or stage fright or felt they couldn't uh, assert themselves very well. So a bunch of these people got together and they were going to capitalize a school for me. But I really wanted to gamble on being an actor. I wanted to see if I could do that. So I didn't. So when my uh, Zen practice began to gel and I really began to feel part of that community, I began offering these acting classes to the children of the priests who were there. And they were really popular. And pretty soon some of the parents wanted to join. And pretty soon I was teaching acting at Zen Center. And I began to see that there were correlations between acting improv exercises and the kind of uh, selflessness of Zen practice. And as I began doing this over the years, as, I, as my acting developed and as my Buddhism developed, the two melded into a kind of awareness. And I began being invited to other Zen centers around the country. And I would do these classes as uh, fundraisers. You know, I could, I could use my celebrity to open up and say, you know, Peter Coyote will come and teach this stuff. And the first day would be for funders or people that wanted to pay the Zen Center. And the second day would be for the Zen students themselves. And one of the things that encouraged me was the, the consistency of the courage of Zen students in trying things on and reaching beyond the edges of themselves in, uh, in a kind of inner courage and fearlessness. And that, that really was what tipped the scale for me and decided that, oh, this is, I'm really onto something here. Well, what is it about putting a mask on that seems to make such a difference? I know, for example, in your, your classes, you would hold a mirror up to people so they could see themselves in the mask. That seemed to be very important. That's right. It is. So the first thing that comes is teaching people how their self is arbitrary. And if they change what they normally think of as themselves, their feelings change. If people, so I have an exercise where I tell people, imagine a little red laser light on your nose. Now I want you to walk around as if that's pulling you and catalog how it makes you feel. So some people feel like birds, some people feel pushy, nosy, acquisitive, whatever it is, it's not them. And then I encourage them to pull it back, less exaggerated, until they could take it out in the street. And then to take it out in the street or go through a checkout line that way and see how it reflect. they get different reflections of who they are. So by doing that, they've had a morning to kind of have their self moved around and massaged and loosened up. So when I put a mask on them and hold a mirror up to it, and I encourage them to move their head and change their posture, look through the mask at different levels, something clicks and you can see it. And I've never failed in 45 years. Um, something clicks and all of a sudden they go, got it. And so I tell them, okay, if you lose it, just call mirror and I'll come back. So my theory of what happens is that they are presented for the first time with a different image than they've ever seen in the mirror. And it excites all these neural pathways and associations and, you know, must feel like a pinball game in there as the mind scrambles to make sense of it in coherence. And it assembles a holographic personality from images, from references, from, uh, uh, you know, some kind of metaphorical thinking. And I don't exactly know how it happens, but I've seen it for 45 years happen. And there's, there's a very practical aspect to it. I teach uh, four times a year at a very good voiceover school in Sausalito, California called Voice Tracks. And the woman who runs it, she and I have the same agent. And we've become friends because we work in the same way, uh, very intuitively and not too much polish and work, trying to connect really with your feelings and your inner life. So you don't just sound like another announcer saying the most important movie of the summer. So 
in the morning, I would do these classes and the mass classes. In the afternoon, the students would be given uh, scripts that they'd never read before. And they'd go in the studio and they'd do a reading and the, the class would watch and I would watch and listen. And one day uh, in the morning before the, uh, the, the, the studio sessions, I introduced the masks and everybody found characters. So I was listening and these people were all good and quite well polished, but they were all imitative of other announcers we'd seen and heard. And I knew that my friend Samantha expected more of them and I did. So on a whim, I said, listen, read this text in the voice of one of the characters you found this morning. And it was electrifying. The whole class snapped to attention. It was alive. It was responsive to every textural clue. It had humor. It caught levels that had been completely missed in the quest to be professional. Now, the problem was for a professional voiceover artist that the voice was not appropriate to the product. So may imagine, uh, imagine Tony Soprano trying to sell Chanel perfume. But what happened was once they did that, then they could read it in their own voice and all the meanings and subtext would still be there. And I realized it was a really useful problem solving mechanism to get yourself out of the way, your desire to be good, your desire to excel, your desire to imitate successful uh, uh, professionals. You know, Oscar Wilde said, be yourself. Every other role is taken. And invariably in these classes, when people begin to be themselves, have the courage to actually be who they are, whether they're scene improvs, whether it's mask work, whatever, it's just illuminating. It comes completely alive and everybody is blown away. One of the points that you make in your book is that when we think of our conventional ego identity, so much of it is bound up in things we learned as children about how to be good, how to please our parents, how to stay out of trouble. And, and these things can be inhibitory for people who in the acting profession or the voice profession. The living profession. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you consider, I, I use the image uh, a lot, you can't pour a gallon into a half pint cup, right? The half pint cup is our personality. The gallon is the vastness that we're connected to. And in that vastness, all contradictions are included. Good and bad are included. You don't have to worry about it. The answer to every question and the question themselves is in this vast emptiness, this pregnant energy. So when you can get people to step aside from their own personality and it happens, it happens through meditating and it happens quickly and a little more superficially, but more amusingly through masks, suddenly they realize that there are infinite choices available to them and it's exhilarating. I mean, all your life, you know, you have an idea. You can see it in people's faces you can see people who feel like they're performing for somebody else, maybe an aunt or an uncle or a mother or a father, or that they fear criticism or that their feelings are hurt. You can see because the face is a mask. And at a certain point, we get the mask we've earned. And to be able to liberate people from that old information and from those early assumptions when you were just a kid, you know, and your parents seemed like super people and you believed what they told you and you believed that they knew everything. And then you go on in your life operating within those limits. It's something of a tragedy because the freedom that's actually available to humans is extraordinary. And this is the best. This and meditating are the two best uh, tools I've ever found to give people a taste of that. I would imagine that the mask work and the acting improv exercises that you do with people would actually accelerate the meditative process. Well, it does. I mean, it. first of all, 
when you see people the first time they've had a mask experience, I let them improvise. The, I do three people at a time. I let them improvise with each other, talk to people in the class as their character. And then I make them take the mask off and hold it over their stomach so that you see both the mask and the person's face. And they recount what they experienced. And it's always that they're gobsmacked. Oh, my God, I don't know where that person came from. But I was so confident. I knew everything about that person. I couldn't make a mistake. Well, who feels that way in their regular life, you know? And so I tell them that if you want to recapture that experience without the mask, the best way to do it is to begin to meditate and to begin to understand what Buddha had to say about the self and about what he called it dependent origination, which means if this exists, that exists. If this doesn't exist, that doesn't exist. So we're all part of one thing eventually. Um, and so I use that as a loss leader to get them engaged in practice because like with psychedelics, no single experience is going to overcome a lifetime of habit. Your habit, I mean, I know all these guys from rock and roll world and the psychedelic world, you know, and some have died of overdoses, some are alcoholics, some are just despondent and out of shape and out of weight. It's because that you can't live in that totally high state all the time. If our, there's actually a part of the brain called the default mode network. And that part of the brain is designed to keep us from being high. It's designed to keep us in this world we all agree on. And you can see the evolutionary benefit of it, because if our ancestors were so transfixed by the luminosity of a blue butterfly that they stopped paying attention, they'd get eaten by something. So the default mode network only relaxes from psychedelic substances and from meditation. And when it relaxes, it allows the mind to make all sorts of new neural connections and stuff. So this is just a short, fast, fun way of getting a taste of that. And when they realize that they're cold sober, they haven't had a, uh, haven't had a drug, it, they're not afraid anymore. You also write that psychotherapy can be an important piece of this work, that sometimes meditation alone or acting alone or even acting plus meditation may not be enough. Oh, yeah, I definitely believe that. You know, when I started at Zen Center, I came out of a decade of heroin addiction and lots of drug use, and I was a wreck. And... Uh, something happened that really scared me. I was a single father. Uh, I was with somebody that OD'd and I realized that if that had been me, my daughter would be raised by the state. Uh, her mother was not around and it was so unacceptable that I called a friendly doctor and I got enough drugs to quit using heroin. And then I interviewed about uh, six psychotherapists until I met one that I really wanted to be like. And I, I basically, I had no money, but I, I convinced him to help me for whatever I could afford. And I saw him three times a week for two years, and then he died. And then I started all over. But during that, that period of about four years, I was also beginning to meditate. And I think there's a real, there's a real uh, interface between them. Psychotherapy teaches your ego how to be more objective how to see the world more objectively. In other words, if you're stuck in a neurotic loop and you can't get out of it, if you're in a relationship with a therapist and you trust them, eventually you'll start saying, oh, what would Dr. Hernandez say in this situation? And suddenly you have a, a, a vantage point outside your own loop. And little by little, the psychiatrist helps you see the world more objectively and less in from inside your traumas and neurotic framework. But Zen practice does something quite differently, which is that it helps you see the world without an ego. 
It helps you realize that the ego is kind of an extra construct. And yeah, it's there, but there's actually a whole way of perceiving where you can drop out from under it or slip out the side of it. And so there are many times when I'm working with students where I'll sense that there's some trauma and I urge them to see a therapist. Because My daughter's a therapist, but I'm not trained in that discipline. And um, sometimes you need somebody to help you see the ground you're standing on. And um, I've, uh, because I've also met a lot of very powerful people that I thought were sociopaths who had trained themselves in meditating. And they can actually be quite dangerous because if you don't, if, if you don't contain the power of meditation within some moral framework, it's very easy to misperceive the Buddha's teachings and say, oh, well, everything's empty. What does it matter if I kill somebody or if I steal their money or if I cheat? And that's like the big picture. That's like misunderstanding the miracle that's a housefly. We have no idea how that housefly came into existence. And it may not mean much to us, but it made something meant something to nature or it wouldn't be here. It has equal standing to us. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in in therapy. I think only healthy people go to therapists. That's a very interesting way to put it. You also point out that there are certain snares even on the Buddhist path. In fact, enlightenment itself might be thought of as, as a snare. It could be very dangerous to be attached to the enlightened state. Sure. Well, one of the things I say to people is if you sit, if you're practicing Buddhism to be enlightened, you've created a duality. You've brought an idea of yourself to your cushion and you're chasing an idea of enlightenment and enlightenment can't be explained. It can't be, it can't be reduced to an idea and neither can yourself. So what most people will say is forget about enlightenment, just do your practice. And when your practice is right, some kind of awakening will occur. And even if it doesn't, you'll be living a good, productive, helpful, and dignified life. It's not like uh, it's not like if you don't have some sort of a wake-up experience that it's all for naught. Because when you meditate for a long time, the mind calms down, the body gets stronger, you've taken the time to think through your moral relationships to other people, and you're studying with other people that will correct you when you get off track. So Buddhism is full of snares. Another interesting point that you make is that in your early years, I think working with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, you would occasionally put on a mask and play a, a, a character who seemed totally ruthless. I, I know it was a, a comic character, Pantaline, as I recall. Pantalone. Pantalone. Uh, but it, you found it very liberating, not only for yourself, but for the audience to uh, get into the persona of, of somebody who seemed to have no moral values at all. Yeah, he was a living id. And when I, when I first put on a mask of Pantalone, I can show you the mask if you're interested. But when I first put on the mask and looked in the mirror, I had an epiphany. And suddenly I knew he was an old, cranky Jewish guy like my grandfather. And I realized he was just burned all the time. And suddenly Peter Kohan, this well-adjusted, completely unadjusted middle-class Jewish kid from the suburbs who was trying to be a nice guy, was trying to be good and moral and helpful and sober, he just disappeared and Pantalone was the guy who would act out everything that everyone tried to hide. And people, including myself, just found it hysterical when you, you when you saw him. The first thing that I ever said, I had a scene where I had to introduce my daughter. My daughter was like a whiny, whiny, needy, spoiled, indulgent, rich girl. And so I'm I'm he walked with a stoop like this, and he talked like that, and he says, I want you to meet my daughter. I love my daughter. 
I love my daughter because <laughs> she killed my wife in childbirth. It was so wildly inappropriate, but I knew it was funny, and it was funny, and the audience went crazy, and I realized, oh, my God, I can go anywhere with this character. And it wasn't until later and practicing Buddhism that I realized there might be a real positive utility to it. I mean, it's certain, just think of all the movies you've seen where you see Robert De Niro playing some bestial guy, you know, or you've seen fabulous villains and you love Anthony Hopkins as Hector Lecter, you know, you can't take your eyes off them because these are, these are parts of the human psyche that we actually recognize, even though we hide it and we're all on the human frequency. And the idea that there are good guys and bad guys is a fiction. We're like radios and anything on the human frequency can come through us. And if we don't know that, then we don't monitor what comes past our teeth or what we put into action. But if we know how dangerous we can be as humans, well, then we're trying to keep an eye on things. I would imagine it also helps engender compassion for people who are, uh, let's say, criminals. Well, it does. I mean, you know, I was a criminal. <laughs> I mean, it's like there's a part of crime that is self-employment. I mean, there's a part of it that, you know, people, every, every immigrant group who ever came here had a mafia. And the point of that mafia was not to engender criminals. It was to engender enough capital that they could pass it on to their children and hopefully launder it. And of that number, a few would stay criminals because, you know, it's good to be the king. But uh, you realize, so in Buddhists, we don't hate the person. We hate the act. We judge the act. We say the person was ignorant or asleep or unaware of the consequences. We don't, we don't talk about evil very much because it sounds like evil is a recognizable, separate integer that can be identified. No, it can't. It's always relative to our ideas of good. I mean, there are people in the Amazon that are training their children at initiation ceremonies to kill an enemy and shrink his head. And that's the way the children are socialized. They don't have ideas that they're being evil about that. So the Buddhist goal to save all beings and be compassionate to all beings, when we see people who are not being that way, we know that they're asleep, that they're operating from a limited egocentric perspective. We may have to protect ourselves from them, but they're the same kind of human that I am. I'm made by the same thing that made Donald Trump. In your stories of the Lone Ranger and Tonto meeting Buddha, you point out the Lone Ranger spent his career fighting evil, and, and yet he would be occasionally killing people. Actually, that was a liberty I took. I don't think the Lone Ranger as a character ever did kill anyone. I think he was always wounding people. But I, I use that because... Um, the idea of good and evil, like, for instance, he has a conversation with the with the uh, Buddha and the Buddha says to him, will you shoot people? And he says, only bad people. And the Buddha says, well, what's a bad person? He says, a guy who steals. And the Buddha says, well, suppose he steals to feed his family. You know, it's, everything is kind of relative and compounded by modifiers. So little by little, I wanted the the Lone Ranger to be like an entitled North American white guy, you know, and Tonto was everybody else. Tonto gets the Buddha very, very quickly. He's not asleep. Um, he's been, you know, looking after the, the Lone Ranger for years who can't find his way out of a closet. So it just seemed like a comedic opportunity to show people all these very, very common human foibles. Well, if you accept, as, as you obviously do, the Buddhist idea that uh, our true self is one with everything, that would include all the people in the world that we, uh, for various reasons, many of them justifiable, we hate. Well, I try not to hate anybody um, because the hate hurts me. 
Um, the hate kills my joy. The hate stops me from being skillful. Usually what we say is if somebody makes you angry, that person was the trigger, but the anger is yours. So if I cut you out of it, if I cut the trigger out of it, then I'm free to examine my own anger. Well, what got me angry? Where, where in my body is it? How does it feel? What part of what he said or she said, you know, was the real trigger? So the hate doesn't do anything except pretend that we're not like them. But under different circumstances, we could be exactly like them. I mean, there's not a gene in the German people that made them Nazis or a gene in the, in the North Vietnamese or the Cambodians that made them Pol Pot. They're human beings. And any human being, look at what 70 million American citizens are doing in broad daylight trying to unwind our democracy and sustain, you know, a, a mob boss in power. So there's no good guys and bad guys. There's there's people and what they do and what their intention is. And so we try not to hate because it just gets in the way of clear sight. I'm under the impression myself that uh, some of the most horrible atrocities ever committed were done in the name of fighting evil. We Americans, we call ourselves the good guys, right? Our nation began with the genocide of Native Americans. And then 400 years of brutal slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, up to today, denying people their full citizenship and the rights of citizenship. And then because we didn't like the leader in Iraq, the shock and awe campaign dropped bombs on hotels in a major urban city during the night, killing men, women, and children in their beds. But we're the good guys, right? So we exempt ourselves from our, our consequences. Well, suppose the Mexicans had, um, had uh, identified uh, Gotti, the New York crime boss, as a major drug kingpin and decided to bomb Brooklyn to get him. It's the same dynamic. We didn't like Saddam Hussein, so we bombed his people. There's no way you can call that good. If you ask the survivors of that hotel who the terrorists were, they'd tell you it was the people that bombed us in the night, not Saddam Hussein, or maybe both. So, you know, when you expand your understanding of who you are, it becomes a little harder to judge people too uh, stringently. You make the point that Often these atrocities occur because people become wedded to uh, an ideology or a vision, what they think of as the big picture that justifies whatever it is that they're doing. It's, it's for the greater good. Well, it's either the greater good or because we, you know, so what Buddha called dukkha, which was affliction or suffering, which is something that affects every living thing on earth. It's like a pepper wind that just blows at everything. You know, nobody gets away. Uh, he called that energy. And when that wind hits us, he called that's the first noble truth. You're not neurotic if you suffer or if you feel afflicted. It's a fact of life. And by calling it a noble truth, truth means, first of all, real. And noble means worthy of respect. And the second noble truth is called samudaya, and it means arising, that when stuff happens, dukkha happens, affliction happens, stuff arises in our mind. Guy cuts us off, we want to give him the finger. You know, somebody cuts in line in the movie, we want to call it straight. We can't do anything about it. It just arises. But what we can do something about is the next step, which is the third noble truth is called neuroda which means containment. And the image is building a clay wall around a fire pit so the fire doesn't get out and burn the village down. And that's where Buddhists, by meditating, by understanding the transparency of thoughts and impulses and emotions, model the behavior of being able to contain anything. Most people, when they're faced with uncomfortable thoughts, they run to the bar, they run to a new bed, they do compulsive shopping, they gamble, they build wealth and power to protect themselves. The Buddha 
demonstrates. When we model a Buddhist behavior, we demonstrate that we're strong enough to face the afflictions of the world with dignity. And when we get that energy under control by following the last noble truth, which is the eightfold path of right speech, right view, right livelihood, right energy, we can actually help people. So when something happens that really moves us or disturbs us, the point is to take that energy and transform it into something useful and good and helpful. And that's the big story that Buddha wanted to recruit people into. That's it. And so it takes a lot of work. Well, I can see the parallels there between Buddhist practice and, and the theater, because the theater also liberates all sorts of passions and impulses that might in any other context be very destructive, but they're contained on the stage and it seems to benefit the players and the audience. And they're contained by the structure of the script. They're dedicated usually to a compassionate purpose. They want to edify us as to what human beings can do and what the consequences of their actions can be. You know, in, a, in something like, uh, well, you think about Hamlet for a minute. Hamlet's actually written in three parts. And in the first parts, he's dressed all in black. He talks about his customary cloaks of inky black. And he's trying to think everything out. And he's just hung up on the fact that his father was maybe murdered and his mother married this guy that maybe murdered him. And he just, he can't think it all out. And in the next third of the play, he kills Polonius and he kills Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and he climbs on a pirate ship and he tries to act it all out. In the last third of the play, he's getting ready for the duel where he dies and he realizes you can't think it all out. You can't act it all out. The readiness is all. That's a line he says. The readiness is all. There's providence in the fall of a sparrow. Something happens. It's a brand new instant, and you have to be ready for it. And so, in a way, that's a pretty good paraphrase of an individual's movement to maturity, of Buddhist development, or any spiritual development. So, one might say that the teachings of the Buddha and the Western intellectual tradition aren't that far apart. No, this, I showed you this book that I'm, that I'm working on, and this book is called, I don't know if you can see it, it's called Vernacular Zen. And one of the things is that when, you know, Buddhism started in a Hindu country in Nepal and in India 3,000 years ago, and it adapted many of the beliefs and customs of that country to be accepted. Buddha doesn't really talk about reincarnation very much. That comes from Hinduism. There was a big uh, struggle on the part of Hindus and the Brahmins to try to co-opt Buddhism and turn it into their own thing. Then when it went to other countries, it went to China and it merged with Taoism and merged with Confucianism. And that was the gift wrapping that made it acceptable to the Chinese people. Then it went to Japan and it merged with Shintoism and um, Japanese culture. And it went to Tibet and it merged with Bon Shamanism. And in every culture, it's wrapped in gift wrapping. So one of the things that's occurred to me over the years is that I would like to loosen the Japanese gift wrapping to show Americans the real gifts of the Buddha explained in vernacular everyday English so it will not seem so foreign because there's nothing foreign to any human experience about Buddhism. And there's something that can be misleading by falling for the exoticism of the way it's draped in other cultures. And along with Japan, We've also imbibed a certain amount of authoritarianism and hierarchy from Japanese culture, which doesn't play so well in America, or let's say has consequences in America. So, you know, after 45 years of doing it one way, I'm trying to find a way to explain it to people where after a while it won't be a foreign religion.
Well, I can say from our previous interview where we talked about uh, your earlier years, uh, you have a uniquely American story so that your expression of Buddhism does seem to be authentically American. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, you know, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I have a little zendo where I sit in the mornings that has tatami mats in it and a little altar. And when I'm marrying people, I wear robes and stuff. Um, and I do, when I do memorial ceremonies, I chant these ancient Sanskrit chants. I mean, I know roughly what they mean, but I do it to be in continuity with the way my teachers have done things. Because you don't want to move too quickly. Um, but I am pressing toward trying to trying to grow a homegrown varietal in American soil of Buddhism, like transplanted grapes. Well, Peter Coyote, I think you're doing a fine job. It's been a delight to talk to you about your current book and to know that you're working on another one. I'm hopeful that uh, when that book is ready, we can continue our conversations. Peter, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much, Jeff. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.